In just a few moments, I'm going to read to you from Psalm 23. And as we gather to worship this morning, I don't know what your view of God is. The Bible describes him in many different ways. King, sovereign, savior. But one of the most intimate images that the Bible gives us of God is that he is our shepherd. So no matter where you are, as you come into worship today, no matter what's going on inside, know that God through Jesus is committed to being a shepherd to his people. Hear this from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. I'd love to look with you this morning in John chapter 10. If you would turn there, we're going to look at the last part of this chapter. We're going to read this morning verses 22 through 30. Remember that we're spending this year thinking through what does life with Jesus look like. And that comes from John's own gospel at the end of the book. He says that he writes this whole book so that we would understand that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, we would have life in his name. So this year, we're thinking about life with Jesus. And next week, we're going to look at John 11. And then after that, we're going to take a break in the summer. And we're going to think through the Sermon on the Mount. And then we'll pick back up with the rest of the Gospel of John through the end of the year. So we're getting close to a, a midway point where we'll stop and take a break. Um, but we're still thinking about life with Jesus together, even as we look through and think about the Sermon on the Mount in a couple weeks. So I'm going to read to you this morning from John 10, verses 22 through 30. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to keep it open, uh, or if you're bulletin, if you read it from the bulletin, because uh, I'm really going to refer to this whole section that ends in verse 42. So listen to this. This is God's Word. You can bank your entire life on it. At that time... The feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let's pray together. Lord, continue to remind us again and again that this place, this time, that worship is where we understand and grow and hear the good news of what you have done for us so that this week 
home, the office, the neighborhood, wherever we are, we will carry the message of good news. And we will glorify you and live out the callings that you've placed on us. So God, Father, Son, and Spirit, fill us with what is true so that our lives would declare this week that you are real, that you love us, and that you have a plan for your world. Make these things true in deeper and newer and fresher ways, God, I pray. For the glory, for the glory of your name, through Jesus I pray, amen. As we look at this passage this morning, here's the point. I'm going to give it to you on the front end. This is the point of John 10, 22 through 42. The clearer Jesus is, the more buttons he is going to push in your life. The clearer you understand Jesus, the clearer Jesus is, the more buttons he's going to push. Make sense? You with me? I know we had this malfunction this morning with batteries. That's my fault. Sorry. The clearer Jesus is, the more buttons he is going to push. All right, let's jump into the text. I want you to see that there's an ongoing conversation that's taking place. Do you notice that in verse 22 it says that there's another feast that's happening? Did you notice that? Listen to this. At that time, the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. The feast of dedication is a different feast from what has been celebrated and the ones that we've been talking about in the previous chapters, okay? John is telling us something. He's fast-forwarding about two months. This feast of dedication was actually a commemoration of something that happened with God's people. You see, a couple hundred years and even more than that, prior to this moment in time, there was a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. And what he did is that he ransacked Jerusalem and he overtook the temple and he desecrated it. And he held the temple and the things of God captive and used them for his own nefarious purposes. And then not long after that, actually it took a number of years, but there was this guy named Jacob Maccabees. You ever heard of this guy's name in history? Maccabees is actually this word that means the hammer. So he leads a revolt against Antiochus, and he takes the temple back. And what he does is he dedicates again. He rededicates the temple to God. And the Feast of Dedication is what they are remembering, that there were God's people that retook the temple and rededicated it to God. And they did that beginning December 25th. How about that? This is Hanukkah. This is why Jewish people celebrate Hanukkah, because it's when they remember the rededication of the temple. You see, John is fast-forwarding two months from the previous 21 verses, and he's saying now God's people are celebrating and remembering when they took back the temple and dedicated it to God again. And guess what is going on as God's people are doing this? The Jews, the audience, the Pharisees here that continues to talk with Jesus, they can't get past what Jesus said in the first 21 verses. It's quite fascinating how John puts this together. 
Because Jesus is interacting with them in the first 21 verses, telling them he's the good shepherd and the sheep, right? So we're two months later, and they can't stop thinking about that conversation in which Jesus was telling them that he's the good shepherd, and he is laying out his job description and how he looks at people as sheep, and that he has a plan for what he's going to do. They can't get over it. It's stuck in them. Do you remember what it's like to be a teenager and live at home? Do you remember what that was like? Do you remember what it was like to be at home and to live under your parents? Do you remember having the same conversations all the time? Do you remember that? Here are some of the ones that I had over and over in my days. My parents would tell me relentlessly, Dave, clean your room. Sound familiar? Thank you. I love it. Clean up the dishes, cut the grass, wash the cars, take out the trash. Sebastian, any of those? Yeah, yeah, recognize those two? And his dad said yes, that's good. Clean the bathroom. You don't have that one yet, Sebastian? Okay, hang on, you'll get there. Do your laundry. When I got a little bit older, it was, um, and this can go two ways, so we'll go with this either way that applies to you. Uh, what time are you going to be home? Or you're going to be home at this time. <laughs> Do you remember all those conversations that you had with, those, with your parents? Um, Do you remember how most of the time those conversations, the reply that we typically gave is, why? I'll get to it. Nah, I'm good. Why do you want to know what time I'm going to be home? Why do I have to do this now? Remember those? Yeah. Those conversations that just continued to repeat over and over and over. It got stuck in our heads. Things we had to do, things we wanted to let go of, things we didn't want to do, on and on and on. 60 days after verses 1 through 21. Jesus is having the exact same conversation. He's still thinking about the good shepherd and the sheep. The Pharisees can't get rid of that idea. They can't let it go. It's stuck inside of them. You see, this conversation is ongoing. And if you go back through and read the gospel accounts, you'll realize that this is how typical conversations went between Jesus and people. He ended up saying the same things over and over and over. Only as the gospel accounts are laid out, it almost seems as though there are two parallel tracks that happen. On the one hand, you had the audience that was on one track, which we'll look at. And on the other hand, we had Jesus who was on another track. And they were going in completely different directions. They end up in two completely different places. Look at the audience. Think about this in John 10. Look at verse um, 31. Look at verse uh, 39 in particular. The audience in which Jesus is talking with, they end up in verse 39 wanting to arrest him. That's where they ended up on their track. Where did Jesus end up? Look at verse 40 through 42. Jesus ended up going back to the place in which John the Baptist ministered. And people said, everything that John the Baptist said is true about you. And some started following Jesus and believing in Jesus. 
They end up on these two parallel tracks. Even though it's an ongoing conversation, they end up in two very different places. So let's think about the audience and the track that they're on. Their track looked a lot like this. A question and then greater and greater and greater hostility. Here's the question that the audience had for Jesus. Jesus, stop annoying us. That's a loose translation of verse 24. Will you just tell us plainly? Will you just answer our question plainly? Are you the Christ? What's underneath that and the emotion of that, what's driving that, is that Jesus is really annoying to them. They are getting more and more annoyed with Jesus. They want to know in their language and in their way, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Now here's a sidebar. If Jesus affirms their question in the way that they want, it is politically dangerous for him to do that. Furthermore, if he answers the question that they're asking him in the way that they want an answer, it is religiously dangerous for him as well because they have misinterpreted what the Messiah actually is. They have misunderstood what the Messiah was supposed to be about. They are looking for the wrong thing. They're looking for the wrong thing. And Jesus has to deal with their wrong definitions and wrong expectations because they are way off base. They're not looking for what they're supposed to be looking for. And if Jesus isn't fitting into what they expect and what they want, they think that something is wrong with him. That's why they get more and more hostile because they're looking for something in a very particular way. And it ends up with this. Jesus doesn't answer the way that they want. Jesus doesn't give them the answer in the way that they're looking for the answer. And so look at verse 31. They pick up rocks, which means we're supposed to put some things together. Jesus is interacting with them, and in the midst of their interactions, they receive from Jesus an answer that is not the way they want to receive an answer. So some of them actually leave the conversation, go over to the part of the temple in which construction was being done, and they picked up rocks and brought those rocks back to the conversation because they wanted to stone him. How about that for hostility? I mean, it's one thing to sit in a room, right, and not agree with something someone says and then just get up and leave. It's another thing to be sitting in a room in which you don't agree with what someone says and, and you leave and talk about it afterwards. But what if you were to leave here, go pick up rocks, and come back? I might run, you know? That's what this, his audience did. They picked up rocks, and they brought those rocks back to the conversation because they were ready to kill him and to try to kill him and to take him out. Now, at that time, that only ended up in verse 41 with them, or excuse me, 39, of them trying to arrest him. But he slips through their hands. That's the trajectory, that's the track that his audience was on. A question, a very specific answer that Jesus didn't give them in the way they wanted. And they ended up wanting to pick up stones and arrest him. Now, let's think about the track that Jesus is on. 
Let's think through what he says. Let's think about what he says in the verses that are here. How does Jesus respond to their answer? What he does is he talks about the church. He talks about the church. It's amazing. Will you tell us plainly if you're the Messiah? And Jesus talks about his people. You see, he's just given them a job description in the first 18 verses, which is what we looked at last week as John Paul was opening up these words to us. But here, here he goes deeper into the good shepherd and the sheep analogy. You see, when Jesus talks about a flock and when Jesus talks about sheep and when Jesus talks about shepherd, he's talking about the church. Because you see, as sheep, we belong to a flock that is a church. The Bible even describes the function of elders as that they're supposed to shepherd people. Jesus goes deeper into talking about the church here with those that are in his audience. It's almost like Jesus is saying to them, you want to know whether or not I'm the Messiah? I want to know if you recognize that the Messiah is supposed to be a shepherd. I want to recognize, I want to know if you recognize that the Messiah and the work of Christ is actually about the church, my body, my people. Look at what he says in verse 27. This is what describes the church. This is what describes God's people. This is what describes sheep that are being shepherded by Jesus. Look at what he says. Three things in verse 27. The sheep listen to Jesus' voice. In other words, they hang on the word of Jesus. They want to build their lives around Jesus and his word. They want to hear it and they want to take it in and they recognize it. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That we hear his word and we want his word. Jesus then says in verse 27 that not only do they hear his word, but they are known by the shepherd. The shepherd know the sheep. And the sheep know the shepherd. He's talking about something that is very deep here. He's talking about something that's a relationship that we are understanding as a people of God that God knows us more and more and more. We are understanding how his word goes deeper and deeper into our lives. We are understanding that we are not only completely known, but we are also completely loved in Jesus. And that takes a lifetime to explore. Because oftentimes we want to live on the surface, right? And it's hard to get down into our lives. It's hard to get into the motives from which we do things. We'd rather just be told, do this or do that, or don't do this or don't do that. And Jesus is communicating something profoundly relational here. He's saying, no, I really know my people. And they're really knowing me. And that they want to be known. And they want to know more of me. And then he even adds this, that they follow Jesus. Do you see that? Listen to verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. We follow Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus, if you're wrestling through what does it look like to be a Christian, it looks like hearing Jesus' word, being absolutely known. And it means that we follow him. And to tap back into things that we've talked about for the last few years, 
It means that we are realizing more and more that there are no bloodless paths to glory. Remember how we talked about this? We all want a great marriage without having to self-sacrifice. I'll make this more plain. I want to be a phenomenal tennis player while not exercising seven days a week. We all want bloodless paths to glory. We don't want the hard work of repenting. We don't want the hard work of admitting things that we're, that we're doing this wrong or ways that we're feeling or operating. We want bloodless paths to glory. We want to be great where everything is just easy. Jesus, you see, says, my sheep follow me. They have the same pattern of life that I have. That resurrection only follows death. And when we die to ourselves, we find life. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message from God. Jesus is saying, these are three things about my church. They love my word. They're known by me. And they follow me. They want the type of life that I'm living, Jesus is saying. They understand that they are never greater than me. They understand that their life following me looks a lot like my life, you see. That's what Jesus is saying to them. And then look at verse 28. He says, this is what the church receives. This is what my people receive. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Isn't that wonderful? This week, we would all do well to read verse 27 and verse 28 again. Through whatever circumstances we're in, no matter what time of the day it is, and ask ourselves, am I hearing the voice of Jesus? Am I being known in this moment by him? And am I knowing him more? And am I following him this week? Am I living out no matter where I am, no matter what I'm doing, do I know that he has given me eternal life, that I'll never perish, and that no one can take me away? Just imagine if that would catch fire in our lives. Just imagine if that would work itself out into how we related to people. And friends, I want you to know it is. Jesus is working this out into you and me. He is. He's doing this in us. He's doing this through us. Well, Jesus says, I need to stick to this, that we will have deep, lasting life, the life you're really looking for. That's what he's talking about in verse 28. You'll receive from me the life that you're really looking for, and you will be absolutely secure. You will never be taken away. You will never perish. And notice that that security doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on me. Jesus says they are so secure because they are in my hand. And then just another verse or so later, he says they're actually in the hands of the, excuse me, the Father as well. That no one can take them out of my hand, no one can take them out of the Father's hand. So if you have ever been taught that somehow Jesus can give you eternal life and you're hearing him and following him and that somehow you can be lost I'm so sorry. I can't imagine the turmoil and fear that must be deep within you to think that somehow, some way, you could lose something that Jesus has given you and something that he's working into you. I'm so sorry. Because the Bible seems to make it very, very clear 
that Jesus did something for his people and he's keeping them and he's keeping you and he's keeping me and our security is not in how great our faith is and our security is not in how much we are following God with certain things. Our security is based upon Jesus and what he has done for us. Isn't that amazing? That's the truth. All that Jesus does is the embodiment of the Father's will. All that he does is the embodiment of the Father's will. He is doing everything with the Father and through the Father and with the Spirit and through the Spirit. So don't get the message. His audience doesn't get the message because as verse 26 says, they don't, they don't belong to the sheep. They don't belong to the flock. They don't, hear the, they don't hear the shepherd's voice. They're not known by the shepherd. In other words, Jesus isn't surprised. But make no mistake, he is freely offering them, will you hear me? Will you follow me? Will you receive the forgiveness and the eternal life that I have for you? Well, not only does Jesus talk about the church on his parallel track, but I want to tell you that Jesus is locked in. He is locked in in several ways. Jesus drops a bomb on his audience. This is why I stopped reading in verse 30. Look at what he says. I and the Father are one. Jesus drops a bomb on them. I read a scholar this week that said, if you were to line up every chapter and verse in all of John's gospel, verse 30 of chapter 10 would be the absolute middle of the gospel, the absolute center of this gospel. Now, I didn't go and work that out this week. I'm just repeating something that I heard because I liked it and I think it's true. And whether it's the exact middle or not, the point is there. There's something profound about this verse. And I read this verse, and if you'll bear with me for a minute, it made me think of Duck Dynasty. Y'all ever remember that when that show was on? You remember Uncle Cy? That crazy guy who had this really jacked up beard, glasses that didn't fit right, camo all the time, always having a little plastic cup of sweet tea with him wherever he went, wreaking havoc on people. One of the episodes, Cy gets sideways with his family. And I remember him, you know, he has all these Cy-isms. I'm sure some of you probably have some t-shirts with this on it. But he says, he says to, his, uh, to his brothers in this moment, I'm about to get physical and metaphysical on you. <laughs> and I read this verse and that's all I could think about. Jesus is getting metaphysical with them. He is getting metaphysical with his audience. He is absolutely dropping a bomb on them. What Jesus is saying with this verse, to, just to start here, Jesus is saying, I am one substance with the Father. I am one essence with the Father. There is metaphysical unity between me and the Father. In our essence, I am equal with the Father. Amazing. Might be routine for you. You might know this already. But I'm telling you, it is absolutely profound. This is part of the stuff that means that we're Christian. And when Jesus says this, it's not denying that he's his own person. 
Remember, John also wrote chapter one, the first few verses, right? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is saying the same thing here. I have the same essence as my Father, and yet I am also a person. One God, three persons. Same in essence. He is getting at the reality. He is declaring it for anyone who has any common sense to take this in. If you want to know it plainly who Jesus is, he is God in the flesh. That's what he's saying. And of course, that ends up making them upset, right? That's why you see after Jesus says that in verse 30, that's where you realize some of them got up, walked out, went to the place where construction was going on, picked up some rocks, verse 31, brought them back. They were ready to throw, and they were ready to throw down. (laughs) Jesus is also locked in to the Old Testament. He begins to engage them, and we'll cover this briefly but it's really hard to follow this, okay? Uh, This is really complicated. Jesus quotes Psalm 82. Uh, He is doing some high-level arguing with his audience. He knows how well-educated his audience is. He knows how familiar they are with the Old Testament. And so Jesus picks out one obscure phrase from one verse of Psalm 82. And if you're not familiar with Psalm 82 then you won't exactly catch what Jesus is doing. And it's beyond me to explain to you all the details of what he's doing now. But if you're interested, I'm happy to explore that with you. Jesus appeals to this passage because he's trying to encourage them and also indict them, all right? In Psalm 82, God is meeting with his people And in particular, God is reminding his people that there were many of those who were appointed by God to judge and to rule, and that they were not judging and that they were not ruling justly. And remember, God's view of justice is much different than ours. We tend to have a view of justice in which we just think, we think justice is defining right and wrong. God's view of justice is not only defining right or wrong, God's justice is also protecting people. God's justice is also giving people their rights. That's why in Psalm 82, he talks about how you're not caring for people. You're being unjust. You're not caring for the fatherless and the widow. You're being unjust. You're not determining right and wrong in the right way. You're being unjust. Jesus is, God is laying out how he views justice, and he's saying, those of you that I've appointed to rule are not doing it justly. And Jesus picks up that conversation in the middle of Psalm 82, and he says, you all are supposed to be just. And God called you little gods, small g, as if to give you a place of position and authority as if to affirm that he has given you this position under him to be just and to promote justice. And if God called those whom he has appointed little gods, meaning serving under him like sheriffs, Jesus is saying, well, what about me? I am God. I am God in the flesh. I am God's complete revelation. 
I am the embodiment of deity. Shouldn't the one sent by God, shouldn't the one who's doing the works of God, shouldn't the one who is the embodiment of God's will, shouldn't it be okay that I'm called the son of God? That's how he argues with them. Of course, they don't like that either. And I must say this, just as a throwaway, just as a throwaway comment, because Jesus makes it as a throwaway statement, and it is so profound. Look at what he says around verse 34 and 35. And the scriptures cannot be broken. Such an amazing statement about Jesus' view of the Bible. Jesus is saying that the word of God is fundamentally true. You can't break it. You can't prove it false. You know, if I tell you that I'm going to do something and I don't do it, I've broken my word. Jesus says God's word cannot be broken. This is Jesus' view of the Bible. Gives you a little window into Jesus' view of the Bible. So if we want to be like Christ, if Christ is being formed within us, we need to have the same view of the Bible that Jesus does. And we need to follow it like Jesus did. You see, these two parallel tracks, they actually end up connecting and meeting. They end up connecting and meeting with this idea of death. You see, on the one hand, the Pharisees and his audience, they want to kill. And on the other hand, Jesus wants to die. But Jesus is in absolute control. Remember verse 17 and 18, if you will, from two months prior to verse 22 and following? Do you remember what Jesus said in that original encounter with his audience? No one takes it from me. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to pick it up again. You see, both of these parallel tracks meet with death but Jesus is in absolute control. There's no one who could take his life. To go even deeper, death had no hold on him. Death had no claim on your Savior. And it's got a claim on all of us. Every one of us. And Jesus is saying, no, I am going to lay it down. One guy I read said this a long time ago. When you think about the death of Jesus and his willingness to die for you and me, it was as if you read these gospel accounts and Jesus has one hand on his heart and one hand on his body and he rips them apart. He did that for you and for me. Even though death had no claim on him, he willingly gave himself to it so that we would have life. Like he said, eternal, that we will never perish, that we'll be with him forever. You see, this actually connects with us. Because as Jesus laid down his life for us, we understand that the call of the gospel every day is to lay down our lives. Every day. We can't lay down our lives to save anyone. But because Jesus laid down his life for us, we in turn lay down our lives every day. We surrender to find life. We give up in order to find life. 
We give up our authority to be under the authority of Christ. So let me help you think through, let me help us think through what it looks like for us to lay down our lives every day. Think through these questions. The landing gear is out, okay? We're almost done. Hang in. Think through these questions briefly or take them with you and think through them this week. What buttons is Jesus pushing in your life? Where is he becoming more clear to you? Where is he getting bigger and bigger? Where is he getting more and more loving, more and more gracious, more and more beautiful? Where is Jesus pushing your buttons? Is he making you think about uh, what voices are loudest in your life? Is he making you think about where you're most committed? Is his voice getting louder and louder? Is it becoming clearer and clearer to the point in which you're having to think about what really matters in life and what matters most and what is most important? Maybe he is getting clearer and clearer when you think about time or your resources or your comfort. He's pushing us every day to think about our jobs, our lives, our homes, our relationship, our plans, our future, our living by false expectations. Where is he becoming clearer? And you realize, and when you start thinking through those things, don't forget about this. You realize what he's trying to do, right? You realize what he's trying to do when he's pushing your buttons and he's becoming clearer and clearer. He's trying to get us to abandon our view of life. He's trying to get us to abandon our view of success. He's trying to get us to abandon our view of goals and expectations. He's trying to get us to think about, is his voice louder than any other? Is what he says, does that matter more than anyone else? His word, does it matter and trump everything else? It means he's trying to get us to think about where we're committed whether we're listening to him, where we're belonging, who we're with, and why. The gospel is about abandoning ourselves. And this sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? See, Jesus is not just telling us how to live a better life. It's not what he set out to do at all. The call of the gospel at times is often counterintuitive. It's not what we're expecting. After I moved here in 13, one of the students that I had in uh, serving at Western Carolina, um, she actually tragically died in June or July of 13. And she was someone who loved kayaking. She loved to be on the river. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think she even had an um, internship with ESPN before she died. And I talked to her quite a bit about kayaking. And I would ask her questions about kayaking because that's not something I've really ever done. And she would tell me that kayaking is actually a very dangerous sport. Because what can happen is after you go over a rapid, no matter how difficult it may be or dangerous it may be, you come over the rapid, oftentimes you can get separated from your little kayak. And when that happens, uh, there can, if you're around rocks and whatnot, you can get caught in this spot in which there's a, there's a backlash from the water that's coming off the rock and it's pulling you in one direction and you know you need to try to swim the opposite direction to get free, right? Otherwise, you might get pulled under and... If there's something under the water, it's possible you could get stuck there. And what she said is, one of the most difficult things to learn is that when you're in kayak, when you're kayaking and separated from your little boat, your little kayak, what you have to realize is that many, many times when you feel that back current of water 
and you're trying to swim against it, oftentimes what you need to do is give in to it. Because oftentimes if you give in to that current, it'll take you under and it'll spit you out two seconds later into calm water. And you can go any direction at that point. And oftentimes the gospel is for us to stop fighting against the grace of God and to give in. When Jesus is speaking to us in our lives, we have to surrender to that and give in. It sounds counterintuitive, but it's the way that we find life, is to give in. Because when we submit to God, it means that we find everything that we're looking for. Make sense? You see, when we give in and when we submit to God, we actually find what it means to surrender to Christ and what it means to find life and everything in him. So why is it that we should abandon our lives this week? Why is it good that Jesus is going to become more and more clear to us and continue to push buttons? We should want this because this is what Jesus did for us. He gave up his life, and that's grace. And that reminds us how much he's committed to us, which means we can give up ours to find our life in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word cannot be broken. We thank you, Jesus, that that is your view of the word and that you even continue this discourse about the reality that you're the shepherd and we're the sheep so that we might know and understand more about what it means for you to grow in our lives. So help us to want you, Jesus, more and more. Holy Spirit, bring us to a greater sense of our need and to a greater understanding of what our Savior has done. For your glory, I pray. Amen. The Lord your God is your Son, and He is your shield. This week, He will not only be gracious to you, but one day He will crown you with glory. As a matter of fact, He tells us that there is no good thing that He withholds from those who walk with Him. It's true today and forever because of Jesus. Amen. Go in peace.